0: This is 186A, Resurrection Evidence, and I'm going to subtitle today's lesson, The Empty Grave Clothes. All right, let's see. I told you to open up to John chapter 20. Did I tell you that? All right, and let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Would you bow with me? Father God, we... um, Again, thank you that we can come before your throne of grace because of the completed redemptive work of your Son and that we are called by his name and we are seen by you clothed in his righteousness, not our own, but his. And we can have the assurance that we are accepted by you because of our Savior. There is therefore no condemnation to them who are in Christ. And I pray that's true for every woman here in this room. We thank you, Lord, for the sweet fellowship with one another, a fellowship that renews us, fellowship that is ministered to by your word and in keeping with what you are doing in your church in these last days for your glory. We thank you for giving to us an understanding of the greatness of the testimony of yourself. And that what we do this morning is is even being witnessed and scrutinized by heavenly beings. I ask, Father, that we would be renewed in our minds as we open up your word this morning. And may our affections be set on those things that are above and not on the evil things that go on on, on this world. We thank you, Father, for for the truth of the fact that You will keep those in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on Thee, because we trust in You. We don't trust in this world or the the leaders of this world, because we know the prince of this world is Satan. But we do trust in You, and thank You for that peace that passes all understanding. We ask that You'd fasten our minds on Your Word, what You have to say to us through Your Spirit. Lift up our spirits I ask that you would not leave your people cold this morning, without life and without joy, but that you would restore to us those things that give us and continue to give us the joy of our salvation. For we pray these things in your precious Son's name. Amen. Well, there is absolutely no doubt whatsoever from either history or from the New Testament Scripture that the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I include in that, Matthias and the Apostle Paul, that those men possessed a faith in Jesus that was so firm, so confident, that each of them was willing to be both persecuted and even martyred for it. It was a faith that was so rooted in their absolute assurance that he had resurrected from the dead, that they were willing to face death. And uh, they they were assured that he was who he claimed to be the Son of God, the Savior of mankind. His resurrection was the keystone of all their future preaching about him. Actually, you know, if you were to go through the New Testament and you were to take out all the verses and all the passages that either refer directly or indirectly to the resurrection, do you know what you would have left if you did that? You would have a collection of writings that are so distorted and so mutilated that no sense could be made from them. The New Testament is not about people trying to follow the example of a good man or a good teacher or even a great prophet named Jesus. That is the distortion of the cults. I actually got home from Bible study yesterday and the Jehovah's Witnesses had been there. They left me their little papers that's, that's what the, the cults say. They don't say he's God. They say he was a good man, a good teacher, even a great prophet. Even the Muslims say he was a great prophet, just that Muhammad was greater. Uh, that's the distortion of false religions. That's the distortion of humanism and liberalism. But the clear and saving message of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ is far more than a good man. He has to be. If, if, <laughs> if he is truly who he claimed to be, um, you know, the Lord, the creator God, the son of God, the savior of the world. If he was just a good man and said those things, he couldn't be a good man because he'd be a liar, right? And he couldn't be a prophet and say that he was the son of God and that he would return if he wasn't the son of God because a prophet can't tell something that isn't true about the future. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. He's either a liar and the greatest deceiver this world has ever seen or he is indeed who he said he was. But the the teaching of the New Testament is not just that he was a good person, an example for us to follow. The teaching is that he is Lord and Savior, and that teaching is proven by his completed work of redemption for our sins by his death, his burial, and his bodily resurrection on the third day. That's the gospel. It's a trinity, isn't it? Death, burial, and resurrection. And that's what it takes to be genuinely saved. You're not saved if you just think that Jesus was a man, a good man, or a great prophet, or a good teacher. You're saved by believing that He is the Son of God, the Lord. And He is. Lord! With capital letters, L-O-R-D. Well, as we begin now to look at the resurrection evidence, we're going to be discussing the two main proofs or evidences that were used by the Lord himself to convince the apostles and other early believers of the absolute truth of his resurrection he needed to prove that to them if they're going to be the foundation of the church they needed to believe in it so how did he cause them to believe well the first evidence was the wrappings in the tomb the empty grave clothes and how they were displayed in that tomb and that's what we're going to look at this morning as we read about the responses of Peter and John to the evidence that was in the tomb remember they had been told by Mary Magdalene that the Lord's body had been stolen an erroneous message but that's what they heard and they took off running to the tomb to find out for themselves exactly what had happened what was going on There is one verse about Peter at the tomb, which we find in Luke 12, verse 24. Excuse me, the other way around. Luke 24, verse 12. And I'll be reading that for you later on. But the bulk of our study this morning is going to be found in John chapter 20, verses 3 to 10, which is really interesting. This is the passage we want to focus on. This is the most complete passage, obviously, since Luke only gives us one verse. But why else is this an interesting passage to read for us? Because it's written by John. Guess what? He happened to be there. He knows exactly what he's writing about. He was there. He's an eyewitness. This is an eyewitness account of what they saw in that empty tomb. And so this is actually John relating to his readers how it is that he came to believe in the resurrection of Christ. And it was on the basis of that undeniable proof, which was the empty grave clothes and the um, the head napkin. And that's what we're calling the wrappings in the tomb. That is the first resurrection evidence. And then there is another one which uh, we'll have to take a look at in the weeks to come. There's a little bit of a ringing Yeah, you heard it too. The second evidence was, of course, the actual appearances of the Lord Jesus in his resurrected glory. He appeared to his disciples and to various other individuals and groups of individuals a total of 11 times, at least 11 recorded times. And by the way, those those, the sequence of those appearances are in the back of your book in the back of the lessons, right before the homework answers. Did you know your books have homework answers? <laughs> Sometimes it takes people all the way through the book, and then they get to the end and they go, oh, the answers were here all along. <laughs> but we ask that you don't look at them until you answer the questions yourself, and then you can check yourself out by the answers. But I don't even know what page it is, if somebody gets there, but the resurrection appearances there were 11 recorded. He may have appeared to people more than 11 times, but we have 11 recorded appearances so uh, that second part of our lesson we're going to take a look at in the weeks to follow, but his very first of them was to Mary Magdalene, and we will be looking at that, Lord willing, next week, his appearance to Mary Magdalene when she returns to the tomb. So what are the two evidences of the Lord's bodily resurrection that he gave to his men and early believers? They were, number one, the wrappings in the tomb and the resurrected one from the tomb. He himself. All right. Now, I don't think that it is really possible for you and I living here in the 21st century to fully identify with the emotion and the spirit of the Lord's followers, especially his disciples after his crucifixion. We always are kind of puzzled. Why were they so despondent? Why didn't they remember? You know, we look back with hindsight and and we're a little bit perplexed by it. But I don't think we can understand fully what they were going through. They had depended on him totally, completely. They had left everything behind, right? They, they weren't just like Sunday morning Christians only. They gave every ounce of their beings to believing in him and to following him and trusting in him. Uh, they had been with him every day of their lives, you know, morning and night, for the past three and a half years. It was greatly unsettling for them to see someone who had been so strong in every way, you know, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, so strong, and uh, capable of doing any and everything imaginable with his miraculous supernatural abilities. Just think what they had seen him do and perform. Someone also who was so absolutely godly and kind and selfless and... And absolutely perfect never ever saw him lose his temper or have an attitude or anything to see someone like that um, one who they were confident was the long awaited promised Messiah can you imagine the Jewish people have been waiting for the Messiah for 4,000 years and here comes this guy who's perfect he has the right genealogical background. You know, everything about him is so perfect. They were sure he was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. Hadn't they confessed that? And so, you know, now in the last couple of days, they had seen him, this one they trusted in to be their hope. They had seen him led meekly without saying a word as a lamb going to the slaughter. They had seen him beaten and tortured beyond human recognition. And then he was nailed like a common criminal to a cross. And every Jew knew that to be hung up like that was to be cursed of God. So how could this be? And they must have had the torment in their minds that um, they had been wrong about him. But how could they be wrong about him when he was so perfect? You know, it was perplexing. Wouldn't it be perplexing? And so they're confused. He had been so perfect and so wonderful, but he had just died and been buried. And it was just like any mortal man. He was gone. To see him fallen and lifeless, it was a shattering thing for these men and women. It was beyond shattering. It was depressing beyond imagination. Can you put yourself in their shoes a little bit? I don't think we can fully but just a little bit. And now contrast that with the picture of these same men some seven weeks later. They're publicly lifting up their voices in the heart of Jerusalem, enemy territory, to pronounce the gospel message amazingly in all of the various languages and dialects of the thousands of people gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost. And these men are no longer shut behind closed doors, trembling in fear that they might be caught and crucified like their Lord had been. Now they are not afraid at all to be in the heart of enemy territory, and they're actually on the offensive. They're, I mean, they're not on the defense. They're on the offense, and they're indicting the Jews for having wickedly delivered Jesus to be crucified. The sermon that Peter gives in Acts chapter 2 I'm going to read some of it later on in this lesson, but it focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see the once despondent, perplexed, trembling, fearful disciples joyful, joyful and bold, even when they are persecuted, um, when their clothing is stripped off of them, uh and, and they're beaten. What are they doing? They're rejoicing. They're rejoicing because they suffer for the cause of Christ and the gospel message. They don't simply endure persecution with a martyr spirit. They're, they're, they're joyful, they're rejoicing in it and for it. Would we be able to do that? Do you think? I hope because the persecution is here. I was watching a lot more news than I do normally this past week and on one segment, They had these people saying, why did this happen? The Boston bombings, why? Why? And it was like nobody had an answer. And then in the very next news clip was about a teacher in a state, I can't remember what state it was, who shared a pocket New Testament. It was probably a Gideon Testament with one of his students because the student during the course of the year kept coming to this teacher asking him, about the verse where it says the first shall be last and the last shall be first and the, the student asked the teacher so many times about that verse that finally the teacher said would you just like to have my testament and he gave it to the, the boy and he was fired and he'd been a teacher for many, many years so there's your answer why? why is this happening to America? well, God has removed his protective hedge around this country have you read the harbinger he's removing the protection because we've taken him out of our land if you you know if that teacher had shared a copy of the koran with that student do you think he would have been fired no i don't think so at all Mm -mm. we need to pray for our country we put God in the back and then we wonder why these things are happening and it's going to get worse and we're going to be persecuted it's already started will you be able to rejoice in your persecution you know we should be because it's one of the beatitudes blessed are they that are persecuted for his name's sake it is a blessed thing to be persecuted not for being a mean person but be, to be persecuted for being a Christian who stands up boldly for the truth. You know we're the only ones in the world who have the truth? We are. And it's a, it should be a wonderful thing to stand up. Teach your children. Teach them apologetics. You might wonder why I get off sometimes while explaining things to you that you need to know this and you need to know that because the next generation needs to know apologetics to defend the Scripture because that's coming and I want them, I want my grandchildren to be grounded so that they're not swayed with every wave of doctrine that comes their way. Like these young people that did this, we had them in this country for 10 years. Why did somebody not witness to them and share with them the truth? Why did one of them have to go to Russia and be made into a radical Muslim? It's kind of pathetic to think that they weren't here and wanted what we have. Well, mainly probably because they didn't see Christianity. Isn't that sad? That's scary. That's scary. But I want my children and grandchildren grounded. By the way, I have good news. My oldest granddaughter got saved this week. And it was so exciting. She called me on the phone, and she was crying. And she said, Grandma, I did the most wonderful thing, the best thing I could ever do. And I said, "Noel, what was it? She said, I asked Jesus into my heart. And the blessing for me was that her older brother was the one who who started leading her to the Lord? He's the one. They actually both got down on their knees. My daughter heard it from another room. She came running in and she sort of <laughs> got in the situation. But um, that was exciting that he led her to the Lord. Um, but she, was, I think it was genuine she was crying and she was so excited. And that's the greatest thing that you can have in your lives to know your children are saved, and to know your grandchildren are saved, and great grandchildren. It is that just that just really blessed me. Um, All right, I got off on that. Now I will be in trouble, (laughs) time-wise. But how do we explain the incredible transformation in these men? How do we explain it? I mean, they didn't even remember his resurrection promises. And then seven weeks later, they're completely different men. Well, you explain it with their absolute conviction concerning the truth of the resurrection. All four Gospels end by testifying that the crucified and buried Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. John in particular. And where would we be if they didn't have their last chapters? If we didn't have the last chapter of of Matthew, the last chapter of Mark, and the last chapter of Luke, the last chapters of John, because he gives us two chapters that tell us about the resurrection and the post-resurrection appearances, we wouldn't have the completed gospel message. We wouldn't know that he rose from the dead. But in particular, John takes great pains to share with his readers the explanation for the tremendous change in the followers of the Lord. In chapter 20, he presents four episodes that took place to create faith in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus, beginning with his own personal episode. What it was that persuaded him. That's the first testimony in John 20. And then he gives us the account of Mary Magdalene. How What it was that took her, you know, to the point where she believed in the resurrection of the Lord. She was a very, very devoted woman. You know, remember, she had been delivered from from much. She had been under complete demonic possession. She was under the influence of evil completely because she was possessed by seven demons. And to be d- delivered and forgiven for much really makes a person all the more um, devoted, doesn't it? The Lord even said that. She had been forgiven much, so she was eternally dedicated to the one who had delivered her, her who had saved her. She was not just a casual follower of Christ. She was not some easy come, easy go, creaster type of person. Do you know what a creaster person is? My son told us this when we were going to David Jeremiah's church on Easter morning. He said, oh, by the way, do you know what a creaster is? Some of you figured it out. That's a person who only goes to church on Christmas and Easter. They're a priester <laughs> Mary wasn't a priester She was 100%. And now she was completely overcome with sorrow. You would think that the Lord's numerous third-day resurrection pre- predictions would have really nurtured in the heart of a woman like this. Don't you think, you know, when she heard him talk about that he was going to suffer and die by way of crucifixion, but on the third day he would rise again, that she would take that and cling to it? A woman who loved him so much and devoted to him that she'd cling to that like we're going to see she clings to him when she sees him resurrected? But she didn't. She had no expectation of his resurrection at all. And when his body was gone from the tomb, she only suspected theft. Jump to the conclusion somebody had stolen his body. So what did it take to persuade a woman like her? John chapter 20 tells us. And then the third episode in that chapter concerns the, the Lord's first resurrection appearance to his apostles, Les Thomas. And this takes place on Sunday evening. Thomas, for some reason, isn't there. How did the eleven? become convinced of the bodily resurrection. And then, of course, the fourth episode in John chapter 20 takes place a week later, the next Sunday, the Sunday following Resurrection Sunday, and it is an account of what it took to persuade the skeptic Thomas of the resurrection of Christ. So these four episodes present different states of mind. People are different, aren't they? We're all a little bit different. We're unique. And some of us are, are pensive types, you know, insensitive types, devoted type people like John was. Some of us just are sort of emotional, <laughs> dedicated but emotional, like Mary. Some, like the apostles, were very, very dedicated but fearful because we find them behind those locked doors. They're afraid of the Jews. And then there are always, of course, the skeptical, like Thomas. And what we have in John 20 is how each of these different personality types were brought to absolute, undeniable, rock-solid faith in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's John chapter 20. So we're going to pick up the narrative by taking a look at what took place when Mary Magdalene brought to Peter and John the erroneous message that the Lord's body had been stolen. And by the way, it is very likely that at the very same time, Mary is reporting the stolen body message which she thought was true but was not. It was actually a lie. She thought it was true, but it wasn't. At the very same time, she is giving that report to Peter and John the Roman guards are being bribed to tell the stolen body message, although they knew it was not true. It's really ironic. You know, Mary's telling a story about the stolen body, which she thinks is true, but it's not. They're, telling, they're being told to tell a story about the stolen body, knowing that it isn't true. I mean, it's just God is using this to really tell us this whole thing is true because it's just upside down and so ironic. It's just like the fact that the disciples don't remember Jesus' predictions about his third day resurrection. And they're believers, but the unbelievers do remember his (laughs) predictions about his third day resurrection. And that's why they took such serious precautions to secure the tomb. And I believe they also believe the Roman guards report. You know, when the Roman guard get to them and tell them what happened, I believe the religious rulers believe the Roman guard about what happened. I think that they're the ones that went to the tomb and took the grave clothes because that was such evidence and destroyed it. I don't know what they did, with maybe burned it or whatever, buried it, just got rid of it. Um, I, I really think that's probably what happened. But God saw to it that, first of all, many women had witnessed it and at least two males, you know, had witnessed those empty grave clothes. Well, let's look at the wrappings in the tomb. The first... Evidence of the resurrection and for this i'm going to read john 20 starting at verse 3 it says peter therefore went forth and that other disciple who is that john himself and came to the sepulchre so they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun peter and came first to the sepulchre And he, stooping down, this would be John, he got there first, he stoops down, and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter, following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which is John, which came first to the sepulcher. And he saw and what? And believed. Now, that's not his salvation belief. He had already believed. All right. He's already a saved man. Okay. This is his belief in the bodily resurrection. All right. And look at verse nine. He admits something that's really interesting. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. We'll talk about that. That's a very important scripture right there. And then verse 10, then the disciples, that would be Peter and John, went away again unto their own home. They went back to where they were staying in Jerusalem. All right, Mary's news about the missing body of the Lord probably was met with an immediate question. Now, if you were Peter and John, and I imagine wherever they were staying, and it is interesting that they're together, because Peter had denied the Lord three times. Why do you think John is with Peter? They were very close. They were two of the three inner circle of Christ. And these two men often when you look through the Gospels are together. In John 21 they're again together. At the Lord's table they were talking to one another. They had a special connection. I don't know if it was like a father-son kind of a thing or whatever. But they were close. John is with Peter. Don't you think John He's such a sensitive person and such a young man but, but godly. He was there at the cross, the only one. He's the one who was given um, uh, um, care of Mary. Yes, thank you. And now he's with Peter. I think he's ministering to Peter at this time because Peter's really down because he knows he had denied the Lord three times. But Peter and John, when Mary comes running in, and I think maybe Mary also, the mother of the Lord, was with them because she had been given into the care of John. And maybe James is also there because he's the brother of John maybe salome had been staying with them because she was mary's sister but now she's off she's out and about doing something else but they might have all been together but if mary comes running in would you not have a question for her after she said that the lord's body had been stolen what question would you ask her well what exactly did you see mary in the tomb oh whoops (laughs) i forgot to look have you ever done that? I mean she she definitely jumped to conclusions. She would have told them about the great stone being removed, but when they got to the question about what you see inside, oh I didn't take the time to look. She couldn't give them a report about angels and what the angels said because she didn't wait around. She had just taken off. So they're curious. And so as soon as they get that message, since she didn't have any answers, they also they they run. <clears throat> to investigate the, the tomb situation for themselves. And when they leave, they start out together, but who gets ahead of the other one? John, and why do you think that would be, probably? Because he's younger, right? Just same situation probably with Mary Magdalene outrunning the other women. I think she, um, he, he outran Peter because he was younger, and maybe too because he wasn't as burdened as... He'd been at the foot of the cross. He'd been kind of restored to the Lord. For scattering, when the shepherd was smitten, they all scattered. He'd been restored. Peter hasn't been restored yet. And you know, when you're not really in fellowship, does it kind of slow you down a little bit? But anyway, when John gets there, um, and I've jumped ahead of myself. All right, they're unlike in their dispositions, but they're one in heart in their devotion to the Lord. It was their deep love for the Lord, I believe, that caused them to be carelessly courageous here because they are going Right now it's daylight. Right now the sun is up and it's daylight. And they're going right into the heart of enemy territory. They had no idea whether this might have been a trap of some kind. For all they knew, the religious rulers could have taken Jesus' body. They could have been the ones that took it in order to get his disciples to come to the tomb so that they could catch them and then stone them to death. Right there on the spot or falsely accuse them of having stolen the body, which is exactly what they did do. They did accuse the disciples of stealing the body, didn't they? Um, And then turn them over to the Romans for crucifixion. By the way, why didn't they turn them over to the Romans for crucifixion? I think it's because they didn't want this, they didn't want... to to even be talked about. Let's just end it quick, you know, tell everybody, and then just leave them alone. Let's just drop the ball, tell everybody they stole the body. But it's interesting that they didn't gather up the disciples and turn them over to the Romans for crucifixion. If they, You know why? Because the Roman soldiers knew there was a lie. (laughs) Anyway, it gets really complicated. But neither man, Peter or John, is thinking of himself at this time. I don't believe either one is focused on the danger that they are putting themselves in. They're simply concerned about respect due to the Lord's body. Neither Peter or John is racing to the tomb to see if Jesus had been resurrected. You do know that. They're not going there to see if he'd been resurrected. They don't remember his predictions. They have not yet heard the reports from the women as to his resurrection. They do not have any hope as they're running to the tomb that he has indeed resurrected. Their only concern is for respect to his body. Who could have done this? Who would have taken his body out of that nice garden tomb, a rich man's tomb? That's what's upsetting them. And in their bewilderment regarding this disturbing new situation, they don't stay together as they run. And uh, John gets there first. And I don't know why he stops. When he gets to the mouth of the tomb, we are told he stops and he stoops down. And now the tombs, the the entrances were, were lower. So when you went into the tomb, you actually had to stoop to go down in. So John stoops down to look in and he waits there for Peter to come up behind him. Why do you think he stopped? Well, some have suggested that he was showing respect for Peter and he was going to allow Peter, as basically the leader of the apostles, to be the first one to go inside and inspect the situation. Others say that when John stopped and stooped over and looked inside, what he saw absolutely stopped him in his tracks. It was so shocking. Now remember, John is the pensive thinking guy. He's a pensive type. Um, that's, that's what I am. I am the kind of person that just drives my husband crazy because I cannot make snap decisions. I just can't. I mean, you should see me shopping. It's just a nightmare. (laughs) You know, he's the kind that goes in, shoots it, bags it, takes it home. That's it. He was a pilot, you know, and you have to make quick decisions if you're a pilot or it could be fatal. But I have to maul things over. You know, I have to analyze them. Look at it from every angle. I'm trying to pick out a color for my kitchen, and it's just oh, mm, it's bad. <laughs> Too many choices. It makes it even worse. But I have to think things through, and I think that's you know, John was kind of like that. However, what was Peter's personality type? What, what what do you think Peter would do when he got to the tomb? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> impetuous Peter. He just he just barged right in, and that's what we would expect him to do, and that's exactly what he did. Peter was action-oriented. He didn't exactly think things through all the time, did he? He would have been a good special forces kind of a guy, you know, just barge right in there shooting guns. (laughs) You know, these small details that are given to us about these two men are so very natural and so harmonious with their personalities that they also bear witness to the authenticity of the gospel accounts. Such human-like details as Peter and John running um, and John outrunning Peter and such details as Mary's human response of frantic bewilderment and John pensively hesitating to enter into the tomb and then Peter barging right in. And then the author himself admitting in verse 9 that his belief was not based on an understanding of the scripture. All of these human-like details, and there's so many that we could give throughout this entire account, they would not be built around an event whose main point was a deliberate lie. You know, think that through. John is not lying in this account. This is his personal testimony. He is, of all the gospel writers, he's the one who writes the most about being moral. And they're, they're testifying of the most moral man there ever was on planet earth who died for our sins so that we too could be moral and live moral lives. In fact, in John's writing of the book of Revelation, he said all liars, their place is going to be in the lake of fire, do you think John is lying here? No, and all these human-like details—he was there. He knows who outran who, and what Peter did, and barged in. I mean, he was there. This is this is truth. To proclaim Christ's false resurrection would be one of the greatest immoral lies of all history. Well, barging into the tomb, Peter saw there exactly the same thing that John had seen from the mouth of the tomb. Of course, Peter saw it closer up because he went on in. And what was it he saw? Well, he saw the linen clothes lying. The emphasis that we find in John's account, also when we look at that one verse over in Luke, the emphasis here is all about the grave clothes. There's no mention of angels. Why do you think there were no, was no appearance of angels when John and Peter got there? I'm sure the angels were still there. But they didn't make themselves visible to Peter and John. Why do you think that is? Why did they appear to the women and not to Peter and John? I don't know. You could speculate. Maybe because they didn't need the angels. They saw the evidence in the tomb. Um, there's no mention of the rolled away tombstone either. Where is the focus? Focus here is it completely on the position, the lying position of the empty grave clothes, the linen clothes and the napkin, the napkin, the head wrapping that had been around the Lord's head. John twenty verses five to seven. Just listen. Stooping down, saw the linen clothes lying. Seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head not lying with the linen clothes but wrapped together in a place by itself. And over in Luke it says, Stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves. The emphasis is on the manner in which the grave clothes and the head napkin were lying there. You know, this is what the angels wanted the women to see when they gave that invitation, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Where he did lay, see what's there. Now, there's a single really long Greek word for "wrap together. You see in verse 7, wrapped together, it's talking about the napkin around the Lord's head. It says wrapped together. That's a really long Greek word. It's a verb and it is used for actually winding the linen strips of cloth around either a body or a head. It literally means rolled up. So don't get the picture of a a napkin like we think, you know, just a flat folded napkin. This was the linen strips are rolled up like they would be around a head. Um, What they would do is they would twirl the strips around the head as a turban. Can you picture a turban? And then they would um, interlace its ends. They'd tuck the ends in. It was lying there separate, you notice that, in its own place, separate from the grave clothes. Now, it would be impossible to extract a body from its wrappings and leave those wrappings in such good order as they are seen in the tomb and the... The Greek suggests that these wrappings were laying in a very neat and orderly fashion. That comes from the word lying, which is used over and over again. Lying in order. Now remember that the linen strips of cloth were layered with some 75 pounds of what? Spices, aloes and myrrh that had been prepared. And those, both of those were very gummy spices sticky, gummy spices that would make unwinding the linen strips very difficult because they would have adhered together after three days. The spice mixture was actually like a perfumed cement that glued the cloth wrappings into a solid covering. So what Peter saw and John saw were the linen grave clothes lying in one piece like an empty cocoon shell, like a like a chrysalis, you know, that a butterfly comes out of. Or like, have you ever done this? Blow up a balloon and then you cover the balloon with papier-mâché, you wait till the papier-mâché hardens and then you pop the balloon and you still have the shape of the balloon from with the papier-mâché. It was as though the form of a dead man was preserved in the grave wrappings. No grave robber would have been able to unwrap the body and then rewind the grave clothes in such a way that they had appeared while the body was still inside of them. For one thing, the gummy, myrrh, aloe mixture inside the folds of the linen strips would have made it impossible to unwrap the corpse without tearing and damaging the wrappings and leaving a whole lot of evidence of vandalism behind. They were sticking together, so to unwrap them, you'd be tearing them. and, And also, it said, I read that it would even adhere to the skin of the corpse. And so when you went to unwrap it, you could even pull off some of the skin. Grave robbers would use knives. They would use knives to cut through the grave wrappings to find, you know, see if there was any gold jewelry or something left on the the body of the the victim or the the dead person. Um, The wrappings, if they had done that, if they, you know, went in and, they, they would cut it and Peter and John would have seen a cut um, and but the body would still be in it are you following me otherwise you know it would be cut and it would be uh, sheared and when they pulled to, to get to the fingers they actually if they wanted to see if there was a ring they'd have to unwrap most of the body because they wrapped the hands separate and the feet they wrapped the hands and the and the feet separate so they'd have to get to the hands and make a mess of the whole grave covering so it would have been there would have been a lot of evidence in the grave clothes if it had been ransacked by thieves furthermore if someone was interested in stealing the Lord's body for whatever reason they do you think they would really bother to unwrap it no <laughs> it would be completely gross to carry off a naked dead corpse Think somebody wouldn't see them Um, especially, you know, it would be in its sticky, slippery, slimy condition from the spices. And also, yeah, the horrific condition that this particular body would be in from the scourging and the crucifixion. And now remember, it's in its third day unembalmed condition. The Lord's friends would never... Ever have been so disrespectful to his body to unclothe it and to remove it from, uh, to remove it and, and take it off in its naked, vulgar condition. And I'm just bringing up this unpleasant subject because this is exactly the lie that was perpetrated by the Jews that the Lord's disciples had stolen his body. They would never have done that. They would never have unwrapped his body. To, I mean, if they were going to steal his body, they'd take the whole, the whole thing, wouldn't they? They wouldn't leave the wrappings behind. Nobody else wanted to steal his body. Who would want to steal his body? We know that his enemies didn't want to steal his body. They're actually Their whole thing was to keep his body in the tomb. That's why they put a guard and a Roman seal there. And if it had been his disciples, which it wasn't, Because they didn't even believe in his resurrection. So they weren't about to steal his body and spread a resurrection that they didn't even believe in. But they would not have removed his grave grave clothes from him. And then for another thing, grave robbers would have been in great haste to get in there and out of there as quickly as possible. Right? So they wouldn't have unwrapped him because they had to get out of there in a hurry. So they would have just picked him up and carried him off. And by the way, that would be a lot of weight. I don't know how much Jesus weighed, but man about 33 years old, he was probably at least maybe 150, 175 pounds, I don't know. And then you add 75 more pounds, and he's about 250 pounds to carry him out of there after you have moved away a two-ton stone. (laughs) Oh, Anyhow, um, the bottom line is, if you haven't followed me in any of this, it's not important because the bottom line is that nobody could have gotten into that tomb in the first place to rob that body because it was a solid rock tomb no one could have come in from behind it would take years for them to dig a tunnel to get in from the backside of that solid rock tomb and they couldn't get in from the front either because they'd have to pass six, at least a sixteen guard a roman guard sixteen men at least standing there and then it's sealed with the cords and the Roman seal, maybe with Pilate's own stamp in it. And uh, they also had to remove that huge one-and-a-half to two-ton stone. And you know if they had to move that, they're going to wake up, even if all 16 soldiers are sleeping, they're going to wake up somebody. I mean, the whole thing is just ludicrous. Nobody stole the body. The whole conversation is ridiculous in the first place because of the impossibility of getting into that tomb undetected. The grave clothes, lying there in their neat, still rolled up a, like a completely discredit the idea that the body was stolen from the tomb. The only way that the linen clothes could be left in the condition that they were in, um, that first the women saw and then Peter and John saw, was if the Lord Jesus had passed right through them as he resurrected from the dead in a new glorified body, a body that could also pass right through doors, as he does later on that day when he walks right into the room where the disciples are gathered without opening the locked door. There is no body in those grave clothes. They are empty. The true and amazing miracle is not the empty tomb. It's the empty grave clothes. Even if friend or foe had unwrapped the body, there would be no way that they could leave those wrappings intact. That would have, they would have, you know, just left a mess. They would have been torn and scattered and certainly not in their original convolutions and not in the very place that he had been laid on that hewn out rock shelf. Yet, This is exactly how they were, lying according to the Greek text. Everything in that tomb pointed to the fact that Jesus had risen right out of his grave clothes. So why did John give such attention to these grave clothes and the head napkin? Verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. Why is he emphasizing this? It's because he wants his readers to see what he saw. Because that's what caused him to believe. Not just in the spiritual resurrection, which is taught in many churches. Oh yeah, Jesus raised in spirit. No, John saw the evidence of a bodily resurrection. Verse 8, then went in that other diso- disciple, that's himself, which came first to the sepulchre before he saw and believed. And he saw and believed. Um, I don't know why I read that, but I wanted to point out that there's three. We have in the English one word for see. OK, when we read that three times, CCC see, 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 or see, see is saw. But in the Greek, there's three different words used. And this is interesting. In verse five, when it says John first got to the tomb and he stooped over and he saw what was inside. That is a Greek word that means he just saw with his physical eyes. Just like I'm seeing you and you're seeing me. You now he just saw what was in there. Verse six. The Greek word for seeth means to investigate. Peter went in and he was investigating the situation. He was uh, scrutinizing the situation. That's a different Greek word. And then in verse 8, when it says that John saw and believed, that Greek word speaks of seeing with perception. Like seeing with your spiritual eyes. He saw and believed. He perceived what the empty grave clothes, in their condition and in their position, indicated, and it was not a robbery; it was a resurrection. Now think this through. A person. Now there is another theory. I think our last day here. I believe we're going to talk about some of the ridiculous theories to get. Try, people have tried to come up with over the years to evade the real resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they come up with some humdingers, I'm telling you. But one of them is the revived theory that Jesus didn't really die. That's why when we we're talking about his death, I stressed over and over again, he really did die. He really did die. There were so many witnesses to the fact that he died. Um, but they say, oh, he didn't really die on the cross. They took him down um, and he, he had just swooned, you know. I think it's called the swoon theory, actually. Um, And they they mistakenly thought he was dead, but he really wasn't. They put him, they wrapped him up in the grave clothes. Can you imagine seventy-five pounds of grave and twirled around his head? He couldn't breathe. But anyhow, after three days in the cool tomb, he revived and um, got himself out of those grave clothes. (laughs) Now think about this: How I mean, unless he was Houdini, how did he get himself out of some 75 pounds of sticky, heavy grave clothes with his hands wound about. And like I told you, they, they would wrap the hands separate, okay? And then they would put the arms next to the body like this and then wrap the body. So how did he manage to unwrap himself? Because first of all, he'd have to unwrap at least one hand, okay? So how? Is it? I was actually laying in my bed at night trying to picture myself as a corpse wrapped up <laughs> to figure out this whole thing about the headpiece and the hands. And, and I was laying there and a good thing Frank is at the furniture market he thought it really crazy. But it's really difficult to try to picture someone getting out of their own grave clothes and then wrapping them all back up exactly like they were. <laughs> and if that body had just been snatched up uh, right into heaven, you know, t- just taken right into heaven by the Lord God or the angels or whatever, then how do you account for the head napkin lying rolled up in its own place okay picture the corpse with a turban and the body all wrapped up and he just taken straight to heaven okay then wouldn't that head piece be laying right there too like the grave clothes but it's not it's in its own place separate from where the body is you get it Okay, so by the fact that the head napkin is laying separate in its own place, it means that hands had to unwrap the head cloth, but those hands, or not unwrap it, but had to take it and put it there. (laughs) Hands had to put it there. And how do you account for that? Well, see, the body, the head and all, the whole body, the whole Lord Jesus came right up out of those grave clothes, and then the hands of that same body, took that head napkin and put it there in a separate place. That's the clear conclusion that John came to. And when it registered, as he's looking and examining, when it registers, he believes in the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ because he had to have real hands to put that head napkin in its own place. And he believed How? On what basis did John believe? Because the scripture, Old Testament scripture? No. Now, you know there are many, many liberals in seminaries that are teaching seminary students and that are in pulpits across this nation. Many of them, you would be surprised in the last 150 years that say that John didn't write this, that Mark didn't write Mark, Luke didn't write Luke, Matthew didn't write Matthew. That they were written and pieced together by 2nd and 3rd century Christians. And they put words in Jesus' mouth. They made it up. And they what they did is they kind of went into the Old Testament and found scriptures that they thought would support that Jesus was the, the Messiah. And they dug up and found verses that said, well, he raised from the dead. And they made this all up. And you need them. Now, that they will say, yes, this book contains truth. Not that it is truth; it contains truth, but you need them to, like you know, un, uh, uh, take the layers of the onion off to get down to those words that are actually Jesus's words. You need them to; t- they they'll tell you. Remember that guy in West End, the minister that we read his report. He's not just alone. Remember, he said Jesus didn't say these things. Jesus never said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." No man cometh unto the Father but. By me? Jesus didn't say that. Those were words put in by later Christians. But John here is telling us that he believed in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus based on empirical evidence, not because he went into the Old Testament to find verses that supported what he wanted to believe. you get it? That's a very, verse 9 is very important. When John walked out of that tomb, he believes that Jesus is alive. He believes that Jesus is somewhere. He doesn't know at this point if Jesus is in heaven alive or if he's on earth alive, but definitely he is somewhere. He is not still dead. His body was not removed and it was not stolen. He is very much alive. And very interestingly, he tells his readers that it was not the scripture. And what scripture would he be talking about here? Old Testament. That's the only thing they had. He's telling us that it was not the scripture (coughs) that persuaded him. He didn't even know, he admits. At that time, he did not even know that Jesus must rise from the dead. You see that word must in verse 9? Verse 9 is actually a clear affirmation that the Old Testament does testify to the resurrection of Jesus. He's telling us he didn't know yet that the Old Testament teaches not only that Jesus, the Messiah would rise from the dead, but that he must rise from the day dead. You know, on the day of Pentecost, in his first sermon, Peter quoted from Psalm 16, one of the verses in the Old Testament that speaks about the fact that the Messiah must rise from the dead. And, uh, He says in that sermon that it was not possible that death could hold the Lord of life. He must rise. You know, in the next 40 days, the resurrected Lord Jesus himself taught his men from the Old Testament scripture. The truth that the Passover lamb, the Messiah, must die for the sins of the world but that he would rise again. I would have loved to have heard the teaching over those 40 days that he taught to his men. But by the time he was through teaching them, they they understood. But John, who wrote the gospel account many years later, admitted that at the time they ran to the tomb and saw the empty grave clothes, he and Peter, he actually says they. He's speaking for all of the apostles. They did not know these things. They were ignorant of the scripture. So what we have is a testimony that comes from a man not anticipating a resurrection of Christ at all. And he has run frantically to the tomb, thinking that the body was stolen. But when he goes into that tomb, he finds something utterly unexpected. The body is gone. But the linen grave clothes are there. And the head wrapping, turban type wrapping, is there, lying apart. From the body wrappings. And John states that it was at that moment, without knowing any Old Testament scripture about the true Messiah's resurrection, that he believed. Praise the Lord. But what about Peter? What was Peter's reaction to the evidence that he saw inside of the the tomb? Well, according to John's account, we are simply told that he went into the sepulcher and saw... And that Greek word was, he scrutinized, he investigated the linen clothes lying there, um, but no response is given as to um, what he thought when he saw those clothes. All we are told is that he went. they both went again uh, back to wherever they were staying. That's in verse 10. Luke fills us in on a little bit more detail. This is what Luke 24 verse 12 says. Then arose Peter and ran into the sepulchre, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed, wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. Luke 24, 12. Peter went away from the tomb not a whole lot wiser. He, remember, he's action-oriented. He He's... He's not the pensive type, but he does go a bit away wondering about what he saw and what has, had taken place there. And the word wondering includes the, the meaning of surprise. He was surprised at what he saw. He was amazed. It also includes amazement. He was wondering with amazement. And the third thing included in that is that he was puzzled. He was surprised, amazed, and puzzled but he did not know what to make of all of it. Now, later that day, Peter would see the Lord himself individually. The Lord appeared first to Mary Magdalene in his resurrected glory. Then he appeared to the women. Remember, as they're on their way back to report to the men, he appears to them and he says, all hail. (laughs) And then the third person he appeared to was Peter individually and we get that from Luke 24 34 he appears to Peter sometime on resurrection Sunday before he appears to all of them in the upper room when he walks right through the door so do you think when Peter saw him later that day he put two and two together <laughs> I'm sure he did because he had two evidences he had the grave clothes and he had the resurrected Lord himself But during the next 40 days, as I told you, Christ would confirm the faith of all the apostles and all the early believers by teaching them himself from the Old Testament scriptures. And then 50 days later, 50 days from the uh, resurrection, Peter would give his first sermon which included these words. It was much longer. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just listen to some of the words to show you the transformation in this man. It is amazing. He said, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, Excuse me. which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. There wasn't anybody he was talking to. Thousands gathered there for the day of Pentecost that did not know that Jesus could perform signs and miracles and wonders, which proved he was approved of God. Okay, that's what he's saying there. And he goes on and he said, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Is he afraid of the Jews when he says that? No, he's indicting them. You, by your wicked hands, slew him. But it was all in the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, of course. And then he says, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Impossible for him to have been held by death. He must raise. He's the Lord of life. He says, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified both Lord and Christ. Don't you love it? Wow. Do you think that those are the words of a liar? No way. No way. Do you know Peter was to be executed? Well, he was eventually executed, and he they say he was crucified upside down because he said, I'm not worthy to be put to death the way my Lord was. So they crucified him upside down at his own request. But there was another time that he was to be executed in the morning, and he was in prison. Remember, the whole church was praying for him and wrote it, you know, when he got. But that night, he knew in the morning he would be executed. Do you know what he was doing that night in prison? Sleeping soundly. An angel had to nudge him to wake him up. That's the faith of a true believer. That's not the faith of someone who made up a lie to deceive all of us. You can trust in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It is true. It's the greatest thing that ever has happened. And because he lives, we shall live also. If you have put your faith in him. Father, thank you for the, the love of your people for the word of God. I pray that you have filled them and I pray that they are happy to have been in the house of the Lord and in your word. And I pray that you will use each of us as your salt and your light in this world that is so dark and so desperately needs the truth. I pray that you can use us and that we will be, <clears throat> that we will be wanting with all of our hearts to redeem our time wisely. Give us the boldness of Peter and the boldness of the Apostles. Even if we're persecuted for our faith, Lord, it will be a blessed thing to suffer for your name's sake. We love you. I ask that you go with every woman. Put a hedge of protection around her and her family. Ground her and her family in the truth of the word. Help her to be constantly teaching her children and grandchildren and those in her circle of of influence the truth. Because if there's one thing that I really pray we have all come to understand through this Bible study is that we can depend on the truth of the word of God. And the truth shall set us free. We love you and we pray in your name. Amen.